So he's told them many things. He's told them numerous times, I'm going to die and be raised again on the third day. He's, he's told them. And they're like, what? They just don't, because it so goes against their expectation. They're expecting the Messiah to come in, take over, rule then in an earthly way. So the fact that he is going to rule in an eternal, not just a temporal kingdom. <coughs> oh, that was loud. Sorry. <coughs> there, thank you. Thank you, Jack. You missed it by that much. <laughs> uh, and they just don't get it, so they don't hear him. He even, they, he even says, he, at the Last Supper, he takes this crust, crust of bread, this piece of bread, he said, the piece of bread that I give to this person is the one that betrays me. And he hands it to Judas. And they say, is it me? It's like, no, it's Judas. You dimwit, he just handed it to Judas. So I think the is, I'm not sure, but I think the problem is they're all men. Now, hey, I'm not just trying to disparage men, but we're wired differently. And we can focus on some things well, and we all, not all, because I'm sure there are some men that are more wired like a woman, but uh, that, I didn't mean that as an insult, but it, it sure came across as one, didn't it? Uh, we're wired uh, where I can, I can hyper-focus on one, like one thing. And I can totally block out what else is going on. I can be watching television. I can tell you, Landon's here about 10 years ago. I'm washing dishes. You know, it's a miracle. Uh, I'm washing dishes. Thank you, Joe. That's why everybody loves Joe. Uh, I'm washing dishes, uh, watching television. And I can zone in on the television like a laser beam. Landon puts a whopper in the microwave with a foil wrapper and it catches on fire and they're all like a bunch of little babies like the house is going to burn down behind me screaming I have no idea I am absolutely close they all get mad at me it's like I didn't do it I'm watching television washing the dishes I'm doing my job but I can I, that's just the way I'm wired I can hyper focus so I can you know men can often do that uh, and we had big fights about this because women are not wired this way. Women can do 27 things at a time. They can cook, wash dishes, manage the kids, write a novel. Yeah, you know, do all of that. at the And they can't understand why you're watching television. The kids are playing at your feet. One's got a butcher knife trying to kill the other one. And you're totally have no idea because the, your team just scored. Or Scotty got beamed up or something. It just depends on which one it is. So, so what did he mean? I, just, I can just imagine that one of the guys turns to the other and says, what did he say? He said, I think he said, we're not going to stay here long. We need to drink all the wine. Uh, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're right. That's what he said. So here's some important things Jesus is telling us. I'm going to highlight seven things. I don't know if I get to all seven things. Because we're going to take communion together at the end, so we'll, we'll see. The first thing that Jesus calls us to do, Jesus calls us to serve one another. 
He calls us to serve in the way that he has served us. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, it's a really weird sentence, right? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. So he stripped off his outer garments, his clothing, and he wrapped himself in a towel. He girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel which he had girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you don't realize now, but I, you will understand hereafter. So He's saying, you don't understand what I'm doing, that I've, I'm washing your feet. It's symbolic. You'll understand later. And one of the things that Jesus is doing in this is that he took off his outer garment. He took off his robe. He laid it aside to serve. This is symbolic of what he's doing when he's going to die on the cross for our sins. He's going to lay aside his deity because you can't kill God. He has to be fully human and fully God, and he lays that aside so that he can down the cross for our sins. So he's going to serve us to cleanse us. He's going to wash us by his death on the cross. This is symbolic of what he's going to do. And Peter said, no, now here's the thing, that they're washing feet, and why did they wash feet? Because they needed to. The way they, the way they ate is so, so far from the way you and I think about eating is that it's hard for us to imagine how it would work because they laid down, they reclined, you know, Logan, (laughs) Landon, Lauren, all three. But Logan is here, so come up here and you're going to help me. We're going to demonstrate this. Okay, so this is how they ate supper. Like this. You lay down right here. Oh, all right. Let's get, I'm Jesus. You picked me. I'm gonna be Jesus. A little for. I gotta have room to eat. So. So they would. You. So they would eat like this, and they they just describe. I'm getting a picture taken. They would describe. So. So John said, "Thank you for doing this." John said. John would lean back against Jesus, the one who leaned back against Jesus. So. He was really, he was really close and intimate. The reason I asked him up because he can help me get up after it's over. With. Uh, I needed help too. So you can see now. Listen. So if you go around the circle like this, your feet are by somebody's head, right? So Jesus is reclined at the table, and he says, "Man, somebody needs to wash their feet." <laughs> okay, that's that would have been me. Yeah. So, I did it. I can do it. I got it. Okay. So, so Jesus realizes that they need to wash their feet. Now, 
normally, in most situations, they would have had a servant. If they could have had a servant, but they didn't have a servant. So it was a disciples. There's no servants in the room. So most of the guys, as they came into the room, there was a basin there. There was water to do it because Jesus took the water to do it. There were supplies to do it. They didn't do it. None of them took the time to wash their own feet. So I'm winded just from getting down on the floor and getting back up. So uh, that's sad. Uh, So he's washing their feet and he gets to Peter and Peter says, said to him, never shall you wash my feet. You know, Peter's the one who just always says what he's thinking, even if it doesn't make sense in the moment. He just says, so he just says, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet because, which is interesting because he's called him Lord and he's saying, you can't wash my feet because you're over me. So I can't let you wash my feet because you're over me. In other words, you're over me. So I can't have you tell me what to do. That doesn't make sense, does it? So a lot of times we do things that make sense. Jesus answered and said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he was bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but, it's, but is completely clean. And you were clean, but not all of you. And he's referring to Judas. For he knew that the one who was betraying him for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? And I'm sure their answer was, yeah, where more wine. Did he say more wine? I mean, you know, you call me teacher and Lord and you're right. And so am I. If I then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's one another's feet. For I gave you as an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. So, everybody choose, we're going to have a foot washing. (laughs) Not. So, do we need to wash each other's feet? So we had a yes and we had a no, and you're both right, because she said yes, not literally. Jesus was not establishing an ordinance that we need to wash each other's feet. He was establishing that we need to serve each other. He washed their feet because they had dirty feet, and their feet needed washing. We serve each other by helping each other in practical ways when people need help. Amen. You want to know who your friends are? Move. <laughs> I tell you what, I don't know if you know this, but next time somebody's going to move for about 150 bucks, you can pay to have two strong guys show up and move them for a couple of hours. It's the best 150 bucks you'll ever spend in your life. You won't have to go to the doctor, get your back fixed or anything. Uh, But serving, how do we serve? They had dirty feet. So a lot of the ways we can serve each other by being just a lot of simple things. A simple thing can show warmth just by greeting someone. Whereas by giving someone the attention of noticing them as they come to the room. You ever go into a store... 
And the employees are so busy talking to each other that they don't notice that you've come into the store. I usually find that the best thing to do in those stores is to walk out because you are going to get lousy service. And I know of people that have walked into churches and never had a word spoken to them by anybody because everybody in the church was so busy loving each other. And we do love each other. And community is about what this is about. A lot of what happens in this church is going to happen in the foyer. It's people love on each other and care for each other. But we can't be so self-centered that we don't serve the people that walk in that we don't know. Our goal is to always be trying to bring people into community. And so, amen? Thank you. Four people thought that was a good point. Six. He got, okay, thank you. Thank you, Goose. Appreciate that. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The kingdom of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is built upon us loving each other and serving each other. Number two, Jesus calls us to love each other. A new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Why is it a new commandment? Because it's in the Old Testament, God said, love love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of the Old Testament. What's the difference between the law of the Old Testament and the New Covenant? The difference between the law and the Old Testament, the law in the Old Testament is an ought. You ought to do it. Did you know that we can put the Ten Commandments up on every courthouse and every schoolroom and it won't change anybody's behavior? I'm not saying it's not a good thing to do, but it doesn't help. It just gives people knowledge of the law that they're breaking. The difference between the Old Testament covenant and the New Testament, the New Covenant, is that the law is written not on the wall in the back of the schoolroom. The law is written in our hearts by the Spirit of God. So it goes from an ought to a joy, a desire. The New Covenant, we love each other because God loves us. We love each other because we've been, been empowered to love. We love each other with the love that we've been loved. So it's not a, it's not a, come have, you ought to do this. It's like, I want to do this because I know and have experienced, I have known and experienced the love of God in such a powerful way in my life that I can love. So it's a new commandment. It's a new way. We're, we're empowered in a new way. It's not just an ought. Oh, you ought to love your neighbor, but you don't want to unless something happens to your heart. Because I don't know about your neighbors, but my neighbors are pretty hard to love. Especially the ones that live closest in the house. All of us. Right? I can only say that because she's teaching a class right now. Uh, And the witness, yeah, because some of y'all will go and tattletale. Snitches get stitches. (laughs) Tim Allen. But what this says is our ability to love each other is then a witness to the world. People, the world will believe that, that Jesus is authentic and real and genuine because of the way that we love each other. And the way we don't love each other and the disunity have, we have often becomes a 
witness to the world that Jesus is not the, the real thing. So we have to love each other to show the, the world that Jesus is real. Amen? I just I put this note in here, and because we know more, we expect more. Because we love each other more, we expect more from each other. So in church, sometimes, I don't know if you know this, but when you love people, it increases the chances of you being hurt. And because church is a place where we love and care for each other, we have to be careful because it, it's also a place where other people can say things to us and hurt us. Just like in, who can hurt you worse than your kids or your spouse? If they want to, because you love them. You're vulnerable with them. And they, I meant that they know, they know how you look naked. I meant that philosophically and not literally. Okay. Then secondly, or thirdly, Jesus declares there's only one way to salvation. John 14, 1. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Interesting note here. I don't think dwelling places is heaven. I think the dwelling place is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that he is building. We are God's building. We are God's people. We are the mansion that God is building. When in Revelation when it talks about the city that's coming down out of heaven, the city of God, the bride of Christ that's coming out of heaven to earth and sit on the earth, it says, behold, the bride. The bride is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe God is building his building. His building is not buildings. His building is you. The building that God is building is not building. The building that God is building is you. And so we have a place. It's already started. We're not going to heaven we are going to heaven. <laughs> Let me correct that. Yes, we are going to heaven. We're not just going to heaven. And we're not just going to heaven then. We've already started the journey. The minute you come into Christ and his family, you come into your inheritance. Another sermon. Stop. Okay. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. How many roads lead to God? One, Jesus. This is offensive to everyone who's outside of Christ. We have to understand that. It's offensive to everyone outside of Christ. Any and all gods outside of Jesus Christ will not save me eternally. My good works will never be enough, have never been enough to save me eternally. It is a stumbling block to people who don't know Jesus. Just as it is written, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and he who believes in me will not be disappointed. If you believe in Jesus, you're not disappointed. If you don't believe him, you're by the rock. And so hard. That's such an offense to people. They declared in Acts, there's salvation in no one else, for no other name under heaven has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. Buddha can't save you. Allah can't save you. Jehovah's Witness can't save you. Mormons can't save you. The Baptists can't save you. The Assemblies of God can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. It's not a denomination. It's not a move. It's a person. And we have to recognize how vital that is. And that's offensive. And it will always be offensive. To say to people, you need to come to Jesus because he loves you and he died for you. And if you don't come to Jesus, you're going to hell. That's hard. But if you love people, you got to tell them. A couple weeks ago, Dan Guevara was sitting in his hospital room. 
And he wasn't doing well. And Tammy, his daughter, said, I want you to talk to him about his soul. And so I said, Dan, that's always, it's always hard to do that. It was always hard to do that, to bring up that question. Hey, how you doing? Because, you know, you may not leave this bed. Are you ready to meet God? And he said, no, I'm not. I said, you can get ready right now. You can get ready right now. And right there, Dan and I prayed together. And Dan got ready. It changed him right there. That right there. It, it made a change in his heart. Now, now, here's what I believe. If Jesus is the only way to salvation, and I believe that, then I need to lovingly and graciously tell as many people as possible the good news about Jesus Christ. And realize that there's a very great possibility that when I tell them that risk, some are going to hate me for it. But I have to be willing to take that risk. I need to, and then, then let me say that again. I need to lovingly and graciously tell people about Jesus, that he's the only way to salvation. I thought she was going to get up and argue with me. I was a little concerned. Not this time. Not this time. Later today. Okay. That's so important. Then, then Jesus declares that he's God. This is where... This is where cults always attack our belief system. Is Jesus the only way to salvation? Is Jesus God? Jesus says that he's God. And then he proved it with miracles that nobody else can do. Nobody's raising people from the dead. Nobody, the big one, the big finale was that he raised himself from the dead. That was the biggie to show that he is God. He says, if you know me, you have known my father also. From now on, you know him. You've seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it'll be enough for us. Jesus said to him, you know, duh. Have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Jesus is very clearly saying he and God are one and the same. He's not making the claim that he's a good teacher. He was a good teacher, like the best but he's making the claim, I've come from God, I am God, and I'm going back to God. Now here's the thing, either Jesus is God, or he is a lunatic. There's no middle ground. Either Jesus is who he says he is, that he is God in the flesh, come to save the world, or he's a crazy person who thinks he's God. Only crazy people think they're God. Unless they're God. Amen. It wasn't crazy. So Jesus makes this claim. I am God and I've come to save the world. 
John 10, 30, verse 30 and 31. I'm the, I and the Father are one. When he said this, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They believed that he just said, I'm God. And it ticked them off, so they tried to kill him. And he escaped their grasp because it wasn't time for him to die yet. We've struggled with this in the church. There are those early in the church that began to say that Jesus wasn't God, but that he became God by his obedience. That he was birthed as a man, but he, by his perfection, became God in the flesh and became God. This was considered and is still considered today by the church heresy. And they worked for years because the Apostles' Creed, the early confession of faith of the church, did not clarify or talk about who Jesus was. So they worked on this, and in 325, they had kind of fleshed this out to deal with these controversies. And this was where we get the Nicene Creed. This is not all of it. This is just the part that deals with who Christ is. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father, born before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial the Father, or of the same essence with the Father, through him all things were made. So that was important. Jesus is God. And Jesus is the only way to heaven. And then Jesus promised them the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14. I'll ask the Father and he will give you another helper. We, we struggle with the word helper because helper doesn't convey strength to us uh, the way that it should. We, we talk about daddy's little helper, you know, and uh, I can see images of Landon when I built a fence over on Olympia, and he was about three, and, uh, and I got him a nail apron and, and put it around him and filled it up with nails and, uh, and then gave him a hammer. And as I was building the fence, he helped me. I had to go back later and pull out the nails that he had helped me put in there. We, and that's how we think of my little helper. That's not what, we, that's not what the Bible says when it means helper. The word, the, the Greek word's paraclete. It's one who comes alongside. It comes from, in the Greek, a soldier had a paraclete. Every soldier had an armor bearer. And it was the role of the armor bearer to carry the armor for the soldier as going into battle. And then in battle, to comfort and supply that warrior and to fight to protect their vulnerable places. So he didn't just like say, go to the battle, have a good time, have, you know, have fun storming the castle. He actually, the, the paraclete is fighting alongside. So the Holy Spirit comes not just to make us feel good. You know, we think about the comforter has come, the Holy Spirit has come, but he's a helper. He's come, he's with us in the battle because life is a battle. That he may be with you, the comforter that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth 
whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. And this is the difference between what they, we manifest in the Spirit of God in the New Testament and what they manifested in the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came upon them for a moment or a season or a task or to fight a battle or, you know, like, like when David fought Goliath or when, when Samson killed a lion with his bare hands. Spirit of God came upon him. But now in Christ, Jesus ascended to the Father. He said, I'm going to send back the Holy Spirit. And he said, it's better for you that I go away. Because if I go away, I'm going to send the comforter to you. You think, okay, think about the disciples. They're sitting there with Jesus. And they're thinking, how can it be better that for you to go away And you're going to send the Spirit who's going to be with us. And so now you're going to be living in us. We would rather have your physical presence. What's the problem with a physical presence? It's limited. It can only be in one spot at one time. So as when you've got 12 disciples, if all the disciples stay together with the teacher, that's fine. But when you have billions of people around the world that are followers of Christ, you need the Spirit of God to be able to indwell each believer. So, so Jesus could say, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Because now in Christ, by the Spirit, we have the Spirit of God in us, uh, with us. I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come again, come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you'll see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I'm in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. God shows his love for us and to us as he discloses his self to us. The greatest love that God can show you is to show you Jesus. To reveal to you Jesus. When you were lost and didn't know anything and by the word he quickened in your heart faith to see Jesus and to see Jesus as your savior. That's the greatest gift that God can give you in all of eternity is the knowledge of his son. So the greatest gift that he can continue to give us is a greater revelation and show us more of who Jesus is because it's greater than we know. I can't get more saved. It's like once I'm saved, I can't get more saved, but I can grow. I can be more like Jesus. I can have more insight. I can have more love. I can have more fruitfulness. So, Jesus gives us his peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, I give to you. Don't let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. It's a peace that the world can't give. Jesus said, neither can the world take it away. It's, a, it's not a peace based upon the absence of problems. It is a peace that is based upon the character of God. Jesus said, it's my peace. It's my peace. I'm giving you my peace. But we often choose to worry. Worry is praying to yourself instead of to God. 
we often choose to worry instead of casting our cares upon God and trusting Him. Putting our trust in God. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving will let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm going to skip down. I'm going to skip some things, and we're going to talk about communion. And the worship team is going to come up because I'm out of time. So... We're talking about communion. Jesus establishes communion to remember his death and resurrection. This is an office that, this is an ordinance that he did establish for us that he wants us to remember. We're going to receive communion together. I think the team, if the team's ready, they can come begin to pass out the communion elements. Thank you. Mark 14, 22 says, while they were eating, he took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it. This is one of the reasons why we bless our food uh, when we, before we eat. It's not a legalism. You don't have to. You're not going to go to hell if you don't bless your food. Uh, but this is one of the reasons why we do it. It's a, we see the model of it in Christ. Christ often, before he fed the 5,000, he took the food and he blessed it and he broke it. So Jesus is leading them in communion just as you receive the elements, if you'll just hold them. So he's sitting there and they're, they're, they're doing the Passover and this is part of the Passover celebration where they're going to they're gonna take the bread and break it. And it symbolizes, because Jesus is the bread, it symbolizes the breaking of Christ's body. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Can you imagine the weight of the shame every pervert every murderer every sick person that's ever lived Jesus carried their sin in his body on the cross and he carried my sin my sin your sin nailed Jesus to the cross And he bore it in his body. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He bore every sin that had been sinned in eternity, in time, from Adam and Eve. Every sin until he returns. He carried the weight of every sin that you have sinned and even the sins that you will sin. have already been covered by the blood of Christ. bore our sins in his body on the cross so that he might die to, we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed God wants to heal you from the eternal sickness of sin and he did it with his own body he died for our sins Hebrews tells us that but we do see him who was made a little while lower than the angels namely Jesus because the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone this is important Jesus changed death on the cross 
before the resurrection, Jesus changed death for you. If you're a believer, Jesus said, if you believe in me, you won't die even if you die. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That doesn't make sense, does it? If you believe in me, you won't die even if you die. What happens? What, because he changed death because Jesus took your death. He took the separation from God that was due each one of us. He took it on himself. He bore it on the cross. He died my death so that when I die, my death, I get to step into the presence of God because the price has been paid for me to go from death to life. He did that on the cross. And then he shed his blood. Then he took, he took the cup and gave thanks. And he gave to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many. Why did Jesus need to shed his blood? Why, why wasn't just dying on the cross enough? Because his blood made him the perfect sacrifice. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. His blood saves us from the wrath. Let's say my friend Rick, who is here today, my best friend, my best friend Rick, lets me borrow $100,000. It's not going to happen, but this is a hypothetical. I don't pay him back. Rick comes to me one day and he says, Randy, I forgive you for the $100,000. You don't have to pay me back. Did you know that the debt is still there? Because I still feel it. I still know that he knows that I owe him. To be justified by the blood of Christ, the difference that it makes, we use this word to make it easy to understand justification. Justified means it's just as if I never sinned. So what happens? By the blood of Jesus, I'm cleansed. And Rick is sin. Memories erased. There's no remembrance of my sin. I could go to him and say, hey, I really feel bad about that 100000 He'd say, what, what are you talking about? I don't know anything about that. That's what happens when we, when we go to God and we say, oh, God. He says, it's already been paid for. It was washed in the blood of Christ. That sin has been paid. It's just as if I never sinned. I've been justified. I've been redeemed. I've been bought from my sin and slavery and I've been brought into the family of God by the love and grace of God. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Forgiveness, justification, redemption for our sins. Oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a Savior. 
gladly laid down his life for the joy that was the joy that was before him. He endured the cross because he knew it was going to purchase our salvation. Every, every thorn in his brow, every stripe in his back, every nail in his hands and in his feet purchased my salvation. Thank you, Jesus. Let's take together of the emblem of the body of Christ. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Thank you, Jesus. As your blood drained from the cross, it eternally satisfied the debt that I owe you and erased it. You didn't just make me not a sinner. By your blood, by your blood, you purchased me and you made me a son. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let's take together. your cup in the nearest aisle. Let's stand together and sing this verse.